We were created by design. We were purpose for this time. A generation on the rise. We won't back down. Hello and welcome to the Free Mind Podcast with Seth and Never Ready. This is Stephen Robles and this is part two of the interview with Neil Shenvey. And we're talking about the critical theory. And in this episode, we're going to be discussing the negative aspects and how it kind of applies to some specifics in our culture today. And so welcome back, Neil. Thanks for joining us again. Thank you. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. So, Neil, um, we talked a little bit. We ended last episode with, with some of the positive elements of critical theory. Uh, what are some of the dangers you see in it, some of the negative aspects? Right. So just to, as a reminder, critical theory basically says that the world is divided into oppressor groups and oppressed groups based on who has hegemonic power, the power to impose their group's values norms and expectations on society. So oppressor groups would be people like uh, men, whites, heterosexuals, the rich, the educated. Uh, these are all oppressor groups. And oppressed groups would be people people of color, women, uh, homosexuals, uh, any kind of LGBTQ, uh, sexual minorities, things like that. They, they would classify them as sexual minorities who are all oppressed and subordinate. And then the, the goal, our goal in life should be to liberate oppressed groups from their oppression. By, by undermining or dismantling or deconstructing these systems of power uh, and power dynamics between these groups. And so that's, that's the sort of a worldview. I, last, last time I outlined the sort of core principles of that worldview. And I think in terms of its conflict with Christianity, the biggest problem is it's a worldview. You can't have two worldviews. They, they won't play well together. Um, and so I, so, and this is what I had seen happening. This is how I got into critical theory is that I saw people beginning to espouse certain ideas that I thought were you know, not really a big deal. Like, okay, they care about social justice. Well, so what? Yeah, sure. Okay. They, they're against racism. Well, yeah, sure. So am I, of course. But then they began to embrace other ideas and I couldn't figure out why until I realized, oh, they're adopting a new worldview. They're these basic premises of how they see reality that are then having implications for how they view all kinds of other issues. So uh, I kind of I make the comparison to, um, you ever watch the old TV show Highlander? It's old no, now. Oh, I used yeah. to watch it. Well, yeah, Highlander, yeah, yeah there we go. All right, good. Sure. I've never seen it. Yeah. So the, the, it was a show about these immortal Scottish warriors who ran around uh, playing with swords and, and cutting people's heads off. But the tagline was, in the end, there can be only one. <laughs> and I like to say that's like a world worldviews, right? Worldviews don't play well together. In the mm -hmm. end, there can be only one. You're going to constantly run into problems. If you have two worldviews that you're trying to yeah, hold on to both of them, you're going to constantly have to choose between them in terms of values, priorities, ethics. You know, they conflict. And as we're going to see in a second, they conflict in numerous areas, and you're going to be forced to choose. And what happens more often than not is if you embra embrace critical theory even implicitly as as a worldview it will slowly begin to eat away at other foundational beliefs that you have so that's the biggest problem is that you can't just synthesize these two ideas and say well I'll take a little bit of christianity a little bit of critical theory because they really conflict as you'll see in, in some fundamental ways so uh, here's an example this is a great illustration um there was a, a a statement on social justice in the gospel put out by uh, john MacArthur and some other people signed it um, and that was very controversial. And here, but here's a response. Here's a response to that statement on social justice. This response comes from Union Theological Seminary. They had a Twitter thread responding to the statement. And here's their very first tweet. In it, they said, We deny the Bible is inerrant or infallible because it reflects both God's truth and human sin and prejudice. 
huh, well, how do you determine which is which? How do you know what in the Bible is God's truth and what is human sin and prejudice? They explain, biblical scholarship and critical theory help us to discern which messages are God's. Wow. So they're very clear here. They're like, look, when we have to choose and decide what is, you know, what we're going to believe, we turn to critical theory to decide what in the Bible we're going to keep and what we're going to say, well, that's just sinful. Um, so that's, a, that's, you know, they're very clear, but that shows you how important and corrosive these ideas are. Um, so that's just number one. Right off the bat, you, you, can't, you can't have both. Uh, number two, and this is a really in, interesting one because people don't think about it very often. But the, 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 besides being a worldview, I would say the most significant discrepancy or, or conflict between critical theory and Christianity is in epistemology. Epistemology means how do you know what's true? How do you find out what's true? And critical theory takes an approach to truth that is very dangerous and, and really will undermine uh, not just Christianity, but the way we think about truth just normally, I think, intuitively. So one of the premises of critical theory that I outlined last time was the idea that oppressor groups, people with power, they hide their oppression under the guise or the pretense of objectivity. So you go to an oppressor group and say, hey, why do you believe this? Or why do you do this? Why is this the norm or the standard? They'll claim to have reasons and facts and statistics and data and arguments. They'll, they'll make arguments that sound rational. But really what they're doing is they're just trying to get control. They're trying to make a bid for power. You have to see through that. And as if you know about C.S. Lewis, have you ever heard the, the phrase bulverism or the term bulverism? No, I haven't. So, so this is great. So C.S. Lewis wrote an essay about a, a fallacy he called bulverism. And it's a fallacy where you, instead of talking about someone's reasons and say, they make a claim. Say someone makes a claim, like, I believe that, uh, you know, the, the, the earth is a sphere. Instead of asking, well, hmm, is the earth a sphere? What's your evidence? Why do you believe that? What, is that true or false? You don't do that. If, if the, the fallacy of bulverism involves, rather than asking the question, is that claim true? You say, what is their incentive to make that claim? What's their hidden agenda? How does that support their power? How are they maintaining their privilege? So instead of talking about the claim itself, you shift the focus away from the claim and to the person. And, and if they, so a critical theorist would say, if the person making that claim is from a dominant oppressor group, then you can immediately dismiss it because they're just trying to maintain their privilege. If their claim is made by a person who is, in, is from an oppressed group, well, that's complicated, but you can still say something. You say, oh, you have internalized oppression. <laughs> you know, you are so immersed in the dominant power structure that you can't even see it. And so I don't have to take your claim seriously either. Now, here's the problem. The way that happens you know, within the Christian church is that we ought to be appealing ultimately to scripture, right? You ought to be able to say, well, okay, you make some claim about what's theologically true. What Christians ought to say is, what saith the scriptures, right? To the law and to the testimonies. I love Spurgeon. So y'all say, you know, where, what does the scripture say about this topic? What does the Bible say? But instead, if the person making that claim is, is, a, is in an oppressor group, if they're a man, say, right? Uh, then you immediately say, oh, of course, you'd make that claim because you're a man. If a woman makes the same claim, you can say, well, you've internalized the patriarchal you know, oppression, oppressive narrative. That's why you're saying that. But you never have to deal with the Bible. You completely short-circuit this idea of the Reformation, which is that we have to always go back to Scripture and say, why do we believe these things? 
And unfortunately, I see that happening a lot. We can talk about some examples later, but that's a very dangerous approach to truth because um, you're going to end up embracing all kinds of ideas because you're not allowed to challenge them. And this also gets back to the idea of um, intersectionality. One of the ideas that goes along with intersectionality is the idea that you can't really know about certain facts. So people that are oppressed have access to truth. They have insight into truth that's not accessible to oppressor groups. So you have to just take their word for it. And if you challenge them, then you are invalidating their experience, right? So if you say, well, I, I don't know so much that that's compatible with the Bible, the, the retort is you're invalidating their, their personhood, right, by, by challenging their claims. They are oppressed, therefore they have insight that you don't have because you're an oppressor. So that's all you know. <laughs> of course, you could come back and say, oh, of course, Neil, you would say that because you're a male. You're trying to oppress me, right? But I think that's the whole problem. We have to say at a, at a baseline, a fundamental level, what is going to be our, our fundamental way to know the truth? And I say it for Christians, it's got to be, what does the Bible say? And it can't be, well, who's making that claim and what's their incentive? That doesn't really matter. What matters is what the Bible says. Um, so you, that, that's a that's a really that's a really huge issue for critical theorists and Christians. So you know we we've managed to not like get into politics so far in this podcast, which we sure. will eventually, and we haven't been very uh, <laughs> partisan or anything. But I here's you know when I hear your explanation of critical theory and everything you talk about, I think two years ago I might have heard it and said, "Man, this sounds like a wild." fanciful conspiracy. <laughs> yeah, I don't yeah, sure. see this anywhere. Like, what are you talking about? But I think where I've seen this play out uh, really clearly in the past year and a half is, uh, is in politics, yeah. particularly between the political left and the political right. And I'm constantly seeing on the left this appeal to kind of race, ethnicity, um, being a victim group, and I constantly see the fight from the right um, is, is, you know, well, we have facts, we have data, we have statistics. And then they're really like, it's really hard to even get a conversation going between these groups right now. Cause I think they're working on radically different epistemologies. Right. Exactly. What you just said. And I, and I think even this is the weirdest thing. I, and you've probably seen this Neil where Christian, like Christian thinkers are finding themselves on the same side as, as atheist thinkers who are objectivists where like five years ago, they would have been at loggerheads against each other. And now they're sort of are like, man, some of the biggest advocates of, of just objectivism are coming from not even theistic sides. And that's been a really interesting thing to watch. Um, but, um, I guess for the Christian, what would you say is the way out? Well, I don't know if I want to get ahead of this point, but maybe really quickly, could you talk about the reality that we do face bias no matter who we are and how do we get out of that, uh, out of that kind of postmodern subjectivist epistemology to objective truth are there are there skills we can develop are there ways we can kind of transcend our biases are we stuck in that kind of behind the veil mentality yeah i think the big thing i would say is that i I wouldn't first of all i would not totally dismiss the idea that we have biases that all of us do that you know we, we shouldn't take this totally 
this a naive approach that, well, I, I just believe the Bible, right? I don't bring any prejudices or biases to my reading or my doctrine or anything. Well, of course, we all do. We all do. So we, we have to start with humility and say, you know what? They're saying that I believe this just because I am an oppressor. I shouldn't immediately say, oh, how dare you? I should say, huh, let me think about that. Let me reflect on maybe I am reading the Bible through my biases. Maybe I am you know, bringing my own prejudices to the table, my own history, my own culture. Let me try to, as best as I can, hear what they're saying. And But here's the big thing. let us I want to sit down with my brothers and sisters in Christ and I'll sit at the same table with the Bible open and we're going to read it together and we're going to figure out what it says. Um, but I think we have, so we, we first, I think the big thing is we got to both be on the same page when it comes to what is our ultimate authority and standard. Are we going to, are we going to appeal to scripture or are we going to ultimately say, well, this is my truth. But you can't, if we're going to say this is my truth, I think we have to have another conversation about what the Bible is and go back to what Jesus talked about when he talked about scripture being the word of God and being, you know, trustworthy and authoritative. So, so we have to start there. And I hope, hopefully as evangelicals, we're willing to say, yes, we are, we are going to stand firm on the Bible being true and trustworthy. And then we have to do the hard work of saying, okay, well, how am I misunderstanding this issue, right? I want to talk to you, a real dialogue, not a monologue, not me waiting for my turn to speak, but I want us to both sit down and make our cases and try to come to consensus. Um, and unfortunately, I think both sides can end up shutting down conversations. So a good example, you know, you mentioned uh, that, you know, Nerva, you and Nerva have played in some churches where you kind of do more of a gospel uh, type of music and maybe more hip hop or something like that. And some churches kind of feel uncomfortable with that style of music. And what I would say is that I think conservatives can also be like, well, you know, and if you say to them, well, you know, I, are you really sure that it's 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 wrong to play in sort of a gospel style? I mean, the words themselves are clearly biblical. So, you know, we're, we're just playing a psalm here. I mean, uh, but they have to be willing to say, you know what, I'm not going to write you off and say, oh, yeah, you would say that. You're this, you're this young, hip, woke, so-and-so. You know, you're just trying to you – know, <laughs> they, they, they have to – you, know, you probably get that. You probably get that. Well, you know, I'm just believing the Bible. It, well, they should have the hum- humility to say, I'm not going to write you off. I'm not going to call you a Marxist. I'm not going to call you – you know, you're just – you know, you're, you're a progressive. I'm going to say, you know what, have I – have I allowed culture or my culture to be normative when the Bible should be normative? Do I, do I assume that what I'm comfortable with is what the Bible says? Now, by the way, it might turn out that they, they are right, <laughs> but I'm just saying, are they open to being subject to scriptural criticism? That's the question. And then conversely, I think other, the other side has to also say, Hey, I feel really strongly about this issue, but am I going to sit down with my brothers in Christ and, and hash this out and listen to them and hear their concerns. I think that's where we have to, and that's going to, that's that, that just doing that, being willing to listen and being willing to assume the best, assume the best of your, uh, your partners in dialogue. Like Paul says, consider others better than yourselves. Mm. If you're willing to do that, you have already undermined critical theory because critical theory is writing you off. You're an oppressor, you know, you're internalized oppression. If you're willing to sit down and have dialogue, and listen to them, and really take it to heart. You've already essentially broken the back, hopefully, of this critical theory approach to epistemology. That's what I would right off the bat. Yeah, so good. Yeah, that's really good. So, an intellectual humility off the bat, and openness to testing your own biases, your own ideas, and then I think uh, you've said this, and we've said this before as well. Um, even when it comes maybe to outside of theological issues, issues of history, issues of philosophy, math, science, 
are you reading broadly mm. in a given area? Are you, yeah, are you yeah. giving people on different sides of the issue a fair hearing and really doing your best to seek truth, even if it costs you some of your pet beliefs? And I think right. that's an important point, especially in this day and age is like, I see more and more people, and we all know this temptation to only listen to, only read the people we already agree with. And we just become this sort of echo right. chamber. Um, but I think um, combining that epistemic humility with uh, a real uh, desire to to listen to people on different sides of an issue can can be a helpful thing um would you maybe say uh jump into some more some more of the the dangers and, and negativity besides the issue of epistemology do you see any more that are just inherently damaging to critical theory itself yeah so i mean there are, there are a lot actually but i'll, I'll try to be brief here another th obvious point is that critical theory assumes that there's this adversarial relationship between oppressor groups and oppressors uh, and I think that that's just generally not the case, um, especially, and this is the big thing, in the church. If if we were to let critical theory have its say, then in the church, within the body of Christ, we would have oppressor Christians and oppressed Christians, right? And we'd see that our views are, you know, we, that we are trying to, some groups are trying to impose their values on the other groups and they're, they're oppressed. And I just think that is completely uh, explicitly contradicted by scripture when it talks about us having this fundamental unity in Christ. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, uh, male or female in Christ. Uh, that's not to say that we're no longer you know, Jewish or Greek or slave or free or male or female. We have the identities still, but they're not fundamental anymore. Now we're fundamentally in Christ. And now those, all those other identity markers, which are good and they're, they're, they're often good, they're good and valuable, but they're secondary. They're prime. They they have to be subservient, subservient and and uh, and de-emphasized de relative to our unity in Christ. And so I think that whereas critical theory would want to divide us between different groups and different uh, different power groups, we have to say no. Uh, these are my brothers and sisters in Christ, regardless of whether they have hegemonic power. Their group has hegemonic power. Um, so that's I think a fundamental prime. The other thing I'll say relatedly is that. In critical theory, you again, you have oppressor groups and oppressed groups, and there's a moral asymmetry there. And oppressed groups are considered sort of the good guys, and the oppressed groups are the bad guys. But you know, critical oh, sorry, Christianity says, you know, you're, you're, you're all bad guys. You're all, there's one good guy, and that's Jesus, and you're all bad guys. And so, insofar as our identity is rooted in our common sinfulness and need for rescue from our, from ourselves, it's going to undermine this idea that well, you know, they're victims and victimizers. Like really, well, the truth is, you're all you're, you are victims, but you're also vic you're all victimizers because we've sinned against a holy God. And so I think that is um, that's really going to undermine critical theory. Another another big this is a, so obvious when you think about it, but you know critical theory is built on the rejection of hegemonic power. It sees these singular narratives and a singular set of values as, as inherently oppressive. The Bible is just one gigantic colossal hegemonic discourse from start to finish. Right? You know, Genesis right. Revelation is just one story about reality told by God to us that we have to simply accept. And that, that just, that's just, that's non-negotiable. Uh, and so you can't say, well, no, I think we should have multiple value systems and multiple ways of viewing God. It's like, well, yeah, there'll be one right way and a bunch of wrong ways then, because there is, I mean, I'm not saying any of any one particular group necessarily has the right way, but I'm saying that you have to accept the idea that there is one right set of values, God's. 
And we're simply, as, as his follower is supposed to embrace them and say, these are the right values. And again, that's not to say that any one culture has a, has a monopoly on God's values by no means, but we are to hold every single culture accountable to God's revealed will in scripture. Um, and again, that's not going to go over well with critical theorists. Um, let me see anything else. Uh, yeah, the moral asymmetry is big. Um, this idea that what's, a, what's okay for oppressed groups is, is not okay for oppressor groups. We saw this, talked about Serge Young's tweets last episode about how right. you can say pretty nasty things about oppressor groups, but it's okay because the phrase is you're punching up, right? You're punching up, you're punching uh, to people that have more power than you. So it's okay to insult them and ridicule them and say terrible things about them as a group. It's like, well, I don't know, guys. The Bible kind of says we should, our, 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 great, our speech should be gracious, that we should let no unclean word come out of our mouths no matter what. Doesn't it? Well, God, but they're an oppressor group. Uh, no, actually, that's for all people. So that's, again, you have to really, and we'll see in a little bit, but those ideas are, are finding their way into, not just into the mainline church. I mean, I think that's unquestionably true that um, you see mainline denominations embracing these ideas wholeheartedly and un, unashamedly, you know, just explicitly saying, yes, we totally endorse these ideas. But I think you're seeing more and more evangelicals, uh, even conservative evangelicals, embracing these ideas, maybe not even knowing they are, but they're embracing these ideas. And we have to really say, hey, uh, let's let's step back and say, are these scriptural ideas or are they ultimately in conflict with what with what God's revealed to us? You touched on churches. In your view, primarily, what are the ways that people are buying into this worldview? Do you feel like it's social media? It's the colleges? It's just where, where is the wave primarily coming from? That's a, you know, that's a really good question. I have, I have talked to people that I, I'm, I'm concerned about their theology and their, you know, how they're viewing things. And, you know, I've done a lot of reading at this point. I've read a lot of primary sources. You know, I don't rely, I'm not getting my information from secondhand sources. I'm not reading, you know, I'm not, you know, I don't watch TV anyway, but I'm not going to Fox news. I'm not reading, uh, you know, conservative sources telling me about critical theory. I'm reading critical theorists talking about it. Okay. And so I'll ask people, well, you know, you say this this idea here, it sounds a lot like something I've read before. Where did you, have you read any any critical theorists? They'll say, no, I've never read anything written by these people. I have no idea what you're talking about. Okay. So then I'm like, well, so yeah, where are they getting these ideas? And I guess the answer is just from culture, hmm. right? You don't have to go far to hear, I mean, if you, not to, not to be, I'm not even be partisan here, but if you open up the Huffington Post, right, you open up, uh, you know, kind of progressive media sources, MSNBC, you're going to hear these ideas all the time, 24-7, and you won't even think about it. And it's kind of like in the water we drink these days. And so I, I think that a lot of Christians are just kind of going with what they hear from their favorite media sources. And I'm not, again, I'm not absolving conservatives of the same tendency, but I think you talk about echo chambers, we can be so part of a theological and uh, social echo chamber that we don't even know where our ideas are coming from anymore. We just kind of, mm-hmm. oh, everybody believes this. Oh, isn't it obvious that oppressor groups subjugate oppressed groups through hegemonic power? <laughs> I mean, like, well, no, it's not actually obvious, um, but I think we have to be really careful in, in where we're getting these ideas. I, I, I can't pin it down to one source. I don't think everyone's taking mm-hmm. you know, a gender studies course in college and coming away from it radicalized. Um, I think we're just absorbing ideas we, we hear all the time in the, in the culture. I, a friend, of, I've given this talk um, several times, and one comment that's always made to me is that people pull me aside and they say, you know what, 
once I learned about critical theory, like once you see it, you can't unsee it. Mm. It is gotcha. everywhere. You're like, I have a friend who in my Bible study is constantly messaging me and saying, hey, do you see this article? It's critical theory. Because he's, you know, he, he's, he's become to realize, yeah, it just really, it's like, a, it's like, you know, it's like naturalism, right? It's just, yeah. it's just everyone, you know, people just believe it. They don't read books by, you know, atheist philosophers or Hume. They just believe it because it's, it's everywhere. So anyway, that's a good question, though. So I don't know if you saw back in 2016, uh, Paul Ryan, he was Speaker of the House, and he took a selfie with all the White House interns that were yeah. starting over the summer. This was leading up to the 2016 election with Donald Trump, so sure. a little context. But in the selfie, you have Paul Ryan, and literally every single intern in the room is white. There is not yeah. a single brown or black person. And it looks like there's several hundred in the room. So as... That's an easy play on social media to say, like, oh, I see how it is. Like, not a single minority right. or anyone but white in this entire intern group. And Paul yeah. Ryan got a bunch of heat for it. But how would you respond to something like that in the culture that comes up? Right. So there are lots of these really hot button issues. Like, I mean, I, you know, every few months, it feels like, you know, we, we, we see, uh, uh, you know, an unarmed black man being shot by police or we see, you know, some racially charged incident happening at Starbucks. And I think we, um, as Christians, we have to be, one, very sensitive to the fact that racism still exists very much. I'm not saying that all those things are racist. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that if we write off people that say, hey, man, I, you know, I'm concerned about racism today. They say, oh, come on. You're living in the 50s. Get over it. It's all, you know, <laughs> we, we're done with that. You know, you, oh, stop, you know, stop whining. Stop playing the victim. Uh, I, I, in my talks I give, I have a whole section on modern day racial discrimination. I go through uh, surveys. I go through experiments, experiments that are done, sociological experiments that are done by sociologists showing racial bias in hiring. Um, they, I like, but, but I think that we need to take the racism and sexism and these issues seriously and, and not, again, it's all about dialogue. Don't shut people down because they are concerned. At the same time, I think we also have to say we have to look at evidence, objective evidence, too. We can't say just jump on the bandwagon and say, mm -hmm. hey, man, my feed's blowing up. Everyone's telling me this is the right, this is the, 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 the right side of history. I'm going to jump on it, too. I think we would be very calm. I don't, frankly, I, I don't read, I don't get my information from uh, news. I don't. I, I read books because I figure mm. if something's outrageous is happening, it'll it'll wait a month, right? I'll learn about it a month later, and it's we're all we're all definitely sure what actually happened. If you were preaching, Neil, I'd say say that again, brother. <laughs> <laughs> You get your information yeah, from where? In corner. Yeah, from books. From What's books. That? Things with paper. <laughs> things with paper, right? Uh, just because I think that at the very least, there. I mean, good books have stood the test of time. You can read a book, and you can. I you know. I you know, I have recommendations if you want to read about learn about race. Don't get your understanding of race from you know Fox News or MSNBC hmm. or or the news at all. Uh, I you know read Ta-Nehisi Coates. Read. Uh, listen to Glenn Lowry's podcast. Uh, listen to. Um, uh, I think it's another examples. Uh, I read uh, Ibram Kendi X Kendi's Stamp from the Beginning. Uh, read John McWhorter. I, but they're and they say, like, well, those are all black men. Yes, but they all have different opinions because they're individuals. And mm. I, but I think people like that will will probe. They'll push you to reexamine your ideas and say, am I really? Why do I believe? Like Greg, ask Greg Kokel's questions. Why do I believe this? What what gave me the idea? Is it supported by the evidence? Um, so, but, but I think for conservatives, I would really encourage you 
to look at some of these studies that have been done. Dr. Deva Pager did a series of studies on, on racial bias in hiring. Um, and, uh, or there's surveys that show incredible, I mean, I, I, so I'm half Indian. My, my dad's an immigrant from India. Um, and I grew up in a very integrated neighborhood. I had, you know, black friends and white friends, Jewish friends. Uh, I, my, my, my close circle of friends are like a guy who's Turkish, a guy who's Pakistani, uh, two guys who are Jewish. And so I have a very, again, very multicultural background growing up. I was just flabbergasted to discover that consistently, consistently in polls, 15% of whites are opposed to interracial marriage, 15%. And there are, there's even a recent poll that was 2013, 2012. Uh, there's a poll in 2018 that showed that uh, 28% of Republicans see interracial marriage as immoral, not just unwise or in some vague sense, but actually immoral, 28% as a 2018 poll. Now, again, you ask me, is that your experience in, in among, you know, evangelical Christians? I would say absolutely not. I mean, I, the, I, I became a Christian in grad school. Um, the evangelical Christians I've known are so gentle and kind and welcoming and, you know, just... So, so, but, but the point is, the data are the data, right? I, I, my lived experience does not invalidate the data, and so the truth is that America is a very racialized place still, and we shouldn't ignore that, and we should be willing to sit down again and talk honestly and, and lament with people who've experienced real racism. Uh, so, I, I just think that's really important for whites to understand and not to write off their black and brown and Asian brothers and sisters in Christ and vice versa, by the way, don't mm. say, well, he's white. He wouldn't understand me. He's your brother in Christ. You know, you gotta, you gotta hope he understands you or at least try. He wants, he wants to understand because he's born again. So I think we both had to all sides to sit down and say, we love you. We love each other. Let's work through this together as the church. Mm. Um, but yeah, that's and that's, good, yeah. Yeah. What, what are some of the, um, particular ways you're seeing this come through the, in the evangelical church. Any specifics there? Yeah. So let me just read some quotes. And then there, are, again, there are a lot of implications. One big thing is if you embrace lived experience as the ultimate way to know the truth, then you have to jettison scripture, right? Because you can't have two ultimate authorities. Um, if your lived experience contradicts with scripture, well, what are you going to choose? And if you're going to, if you're premise, if your fundamental premise of your worldview says you must not challenge lived experience, well, what are you going to do when the Bible challenges lived experience, right? And then, so I think that's a we see that all the time with issues of gender and sexuality, but even issues like of, of race, like we're we're certain. I, I mean, I see people calling for us to um, to decolonize our theology, to essentially that that you know our theology is too white, and we have to therefore we have to embrace theologians of color. Uh, and I would say, okay, I'm not denying that we should try to get a rounded view and say, and we have, we get input from lots of people. And, and obviously we can be blinded by our own culture. We should, I agree with all of that stuff. But when you say we have to reject, we have to decolonize theology. Well, what do you mean there? Because do you mean I should reject like sola fide or sola, you know, sola gratia? Like we got the, the doctrine of the Reformation because they're Eurocentric. Is that what you're saying? I just have to reject right, the Protestantism because it came out of Europe or I have to reject you know, Charles Spurgeon, because he's an old white, you know, Englishman. I, I, that's, or I have to embrace, you know, th theologians, you know, who are, who are from, from oppressed groups. Well, what do you mean? Should I embrace the theology of, say, Vadi Bakum or Creflo Dollar, right? Or, you know, so, you know, so say, well, they're, they're a person of color, therefore they have this unique insight into truth. 
I say, hey, I don't. I think we definitely should get multiple perspectives, but I would say we need to figure out what claims, what theological beliefs are true objectively. Mm. We shouldn't work to get rid of privileged theology. We should just ask what theology is true because it's taught by Scripture, and then let the chips fall where they may. Essentially, in terms of like, well, it's you know, this is a, a certain ethnicity or whatever. I I think we have to just insist that. Well, we can gain insight from reading diverse theologians. We have to ultimately ask, what does the Bible say? Not who who is saying this. What what group identity do they do they have? That that's really uh, difficult. And and if you don't mind, I might ask you a specific test case that actually happened in real life to us. Nerve and I were privileged to be a part of a uh, a Lifeway conference last year, where we were doing the worship, and we were we were going to be on a panel. And they were going to talk about, um, you know, race relationships and unity in the church, that kind of thing. And it was, um, I think it was probably going to be like four other white women because it was a, it was actually a women's conference thing. And then me and Nerva, Nerva being the only uh, black person on stage. So they, you know, I had been like kind of studying this stuff and reading it for the past six months to a year just on unity and racial reconciliation. But they came up to us right before uh the event and they said this one person said uh no 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 we canceled that i told them we cannot do that that's so insensitive to talk on this topic and only have one black person up there one african-american up there and so we canceled it and you know i i understood where they were coming from and i think probably the audience might have perceived it weird and so there there might have been some wisdom in that but i before i read about critical theory something inside of me thought you know I'd actually, I had actually read a lot of African American people and was prepared to present their perspectives and had thought deeply about the issue. And right. They decided to cancel it based on an external reason. And I said, I wonder if there's something, I don't know, just not quite right. It didn't quite sit with me right as a person who believes in kind of objective knowledge and, and that we would want to know more about the person's um, reasons for what they're saying rather than their skin color. But just here right. an example, do you think that that's misguided? And then are there situations in the church where it is, it, it is wise to not, you know, have that picture with Paul Ryan and all those white people? Like, how do we, how do we balance that? Is it a case by case? Is it a gray thing? Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it's tricky. Like, as you like, you're saying it's the the perception. So, if the perception, like the Paul Ryan photo, is oh, you know, there are all these white people, and what's and I think we should be sensitive and say, yeah, you know, if I am constantly seeing the people at uh, holding levers of power, they're all white men, right? And I'm a person of color. Yeah, how, how does it make me feel? I, you know, I I can I see that that can be troubling and concerning. But I think that the so I think we should again, be be aware of that of how it looks to the outside, um, and I think we should be sensitive. And, and if we can, if, but see, on the other hand, I, I have to. The other side of that is I'm really wary of this idea that well, two things. One is to- tokenism, right? What they what they don't they don't they're not they're not saying well we. They're not saying well we need to get a black person's ideas because they're uh, they're they're right, they're righter than the white person. They just want a certain number of, a certain amount of color on the stage. Uh, you know, our pastor says, we know, we say we want a multicultural church, but often we just want a multicolored church. You want your brochure to look nice, right? Uh, and, and that's really, that's tokenism, man. I'd kind of feel, actually, I have a, I had a, a, a female friend who talked about how, actually, she was quite offended at, at how people would say, 
well, you know, would say things like, we want to get your opinion on this because you're a woman. And she'd like, that's, that's actually insulting to me because I want you to value my opinion because it's a good opinion. Because I have facts and evidence and, I, and good exegesis. I don't want you to pat me on the head and because I'm a woman or because I'm a woman letting you speak to our panel. That's actually, actually, you know, it's a, it's like soft bigotry of low expectations. Like, oh, we let you on because we just want you to fill our quota. So I, I, I'm worried of that, number one. I, 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 but I think, again, I, I, I'm, I do think there's a place for us to say, can we show the world and other Christians that we really do want our, the church to reflect the kingdom? I mean, the, the church is, I'm going to say this very clearly, the church globally is is majority non-white, right? I mean, there's some crazy stats from Africa. I think there are more Presbyterians in Ghana than there are in Scotland, right? So, yeah. So, I mean, the church globally is totally non-white. I mean, it's by a huge by a huge margin. Um, but so, I think we should we should try. We should want the church in the America to look that way too, because not not because we want a full quota, because it reflects God's kingdom. We want to be people that reflect God's kingdom. But I am also wary of this because because of critical theory that people might be subtly thinking, well, maybe we want blacks not just as tokens, which already is offensive, I think, but but because they have special insight into truth. Yeah. And I want to be careful there because again, there are people that I have seen personally who start embracing, I think, wrong doctrine, and their justification is, well, it's it's the right color doctrine, and that's a terrible idea. And again, it's sort of offensive because you're like, I mean, do do people have special ability to access truth because of the color of their skin? I don't think so. They can their experiences can help them understand certain things, sure. But at the end of the day, it's scripture that has to be our our ultimate authority. And so, again, I just I'm just I'm it's, I'm I'm sort of mixed on that uh, how I right. feel about it. Um, yeah, I was kind of mixed on it too because I understood what what she was saying for sure, and we, we didn't you know you didn't want to present something like that in the wrong way. But like you said, I did have that underlying feeling because I had, even though I wasn't familiar with critical theory at the time, I had recently read a book where the guy was arguing that people in the oppressed position had an epistemological advantage. And I remember reading that book and, and thinking, no, that's not right. That's Let me just right. skip ahead. So, you know, this is, you asked me about uh, in the church, how this works out. So you talked about, I, I want to read some quotes from evangelicals now, because I, um, one of the one of the some of the pushback I often get from this, this these talks is that well you know you're talking about the mainline church you're not talking about conservative evangelicals right you're talking about maybe progressive evangelicals progressive Christians and I really want to say no I'm not this these ideas are are seeping into the the conservative evangelical church at an alarming rate so here's a quote from a professor professor at a conservative evangelical seminary. I'm not going to name any names here. I'm not about the people. I'm about the ideas and, and, and pointing them out. Um, this is what the author writes. The Bible is written from the lens of the marginalized. If you come from a group or community that is historically not marginalized, you need these voices and perspectives or else your understanding of the word, the gospel, and the Christian life will be thin and weak. This is a professor at a, a professor at a conservative seminary. Now he said what you just said, Seth. He, he just said you don't have access to truths that have, that are only available to people from marginalized groups. Now think about that. Think about what that does to the perspicuity of Scripture and the and the and the sufficiency of Scripture. 
Uh, I mean, th- and think about it historically. Are you saying that Charles Spurgeon had a thin and weak grasp of the gospel because he was from a, a not a he was not from a marginalized group? Are you thinking uh, Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, David Martin Lloyd Jones? I mean, is that a true statement? Is it really true that we need, uh, if we're of a certain demographic characteristic, we cannot have a, a full understanding of the gospel? That's kind of a scary statement, and it's all, and frankly, it's completely false. Um, and that's and this is a, here's a, here are a few other ones. I, um, let me read a few more that are just kind of alarming. Here's a here's a statement by a popular author. Um, the author was identifying it as a, an evangelical very recently, as late as 2017, and their work is actually still featured on the ERLC website. That's the Southern Baptist website for you know, ethics and religious liberty. So it's a you know conservative site. Um, but the author has gone on sort of a journey in the last two years, recently. Uh, and on their webpage, they list male privilege, abled privilege, cis-hetero privilege, citizenship status privilege, and so on, as privileges, privileges granted by societal systems of oppression and supremacy. And, and then on that same page... They have a list of children's books, um, and it includes a book called A is for Activist, and it's an alphabet book geared for children 3 to 8, and includes statements like this, LGBTQ, love who you choose, and T is for Trans, trust in the true, the he, she, they, that is you. And another book uh, recommended for children's ages 5 through 8 was Pride, the story of Harvey Milk and the Rainbow Flag. Harvey Milk was the first gay mayor of San Francisco. Um, and those books, now why are those books on the same page of recommended books for children, on the same page as books that talk about sexism, racism, uh, and, and slavery? Mm. Well, because, you know, why are they all on the same page? Well, because the author sees all of so sexism, racism, ableism, heteronormativity, and cisgender privilege as all forms of oppression. That is critical theory. So the author has embraced critical theory and is now moving you know, rapidly in the direction of all these other ideas because they have internalized these ideas. So, and this is a person whose, their articles are still on the ERLC website. Um, wow. And just for our listeners, cisgender means you identify as the biological gender that you are, correct? Right. So not the, yeah, the opposite of transgender. Right. So that's a privilege. That's, that's an effect. That, that is a position. That reinforces that normative thing that basically makes you on the oppressor side. And it's a form of oppression. Here's a, uh, I'll just do one more. This is from, um, Twitter is a great, a great and awful place. So this is from Twitter. <laughs> but if you remember, uh, John, John Allen Chow was a missionary who was killed when he tried to bring the gospel to the Sentinelese. Right. Um, and uh, and the, so I might kind of comment on the you know the, the wisdom of the issue. Any of that? I'm gonna, I want to just parse how this author is responding. How is the author thinking about what happened? So here's the tweet. It's actually a thread. I'm sad that Chow's stupidity and colonialist mindset got him killed, and that his family is mourning him. But he was not a martyr. The colonialized rhetoric that I'm hearing from Christians is appalling. You all really believe that God would just send someone to go into some place balls to the wall with all their diseases and everything just to preach a colonized Jesus. Hmm. Now, the author goes on to talk about how her God wouldn't do that and how maybe her God would send an angel or some other non-Western means of preaching the gospel, right? So that whole uh, uh, diatribe that, that the author wrote is rooted in this idea of 
critical theory. Yeah, why was you know Chow was Asian, but why so why is he called a you know, preaching a colonized Jesus? Well, it's because he is part of a white supremacist society, right? America is white supremacist, which they mean they don't mean an actively um, an actively you know bigoted society full of hatred of black people. When when critical theorists talk about white supremacy, they mean that whiteness is the norm. It, it is considered normal to be white. But of course, the, the phrase white supremacy conjures up images of like the KKK. They don't mean that when they talk about white supremacy. They mean something else. So right. I'm just clarifying here. But so you end up importing all that, like impregnating that term with all those images of KKK. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean there are so many terms that have been that have been changed. So oppression, about oppression to a critical theorist does not mean what it means in the dictionary. Right. White supremacy does not mean what it means in the dictionary. Um, racism does not mean what it means in the dictionary. Racism in critical theory. Um, is asymmetric. So racism is, you know, the, the, the concise definition is prejudice plus power. Yeah. So mm. blacks can't be, or people of color can't be racist because they're not in positions of hegemonic power. Um, and of course the, the response a Christian should make then is, well, is racism a sin? If racism is a sin, then we have to say it's, it's equally applicable to people, whether or not they have power, right? You, it'd be yeah. like defining it, you know, you don't go around saying, well, I'm going to define adultery as when a man does it, but when a woman commits adultery, they're going to call it cheating. <laughs> well, wait a minute. They're, right. they're both equally bad in God's eyes. You can't right. define your terms so that one sounds really bad. The other says, oh, it's just cheating. But that's actually – it's undermining – really undermining a biblical view of sin. And so anyway, there's a lot to go into there. But the point is here just that that tweet thread was just so steeped in critical theory in the way of that the author's thinking about – what the gospel is, how the gospel gets preached, how an Asian person going to preach the gospel to a to a, a non-white ethnic group is somehow colonized, colonizing them. So it's just it, I, there are a lot of places where I could go on and on for sure. Um, with wow. and these are again, these are conservative evangelicals. They're affiliated with conservative institutions that are writing on conservative websites, and they are either knowingly or probably unknowingly unconsciously you know repeating these ideas that are that are that are gleaned from critical theory so it is a it is a concern it's concerning well i'm we're we're starting to run out of time here but i want to finish with a couple more questions so one um how do we with that in mind being in the evangelical church what can we do about it without going on a critical theory witch hunt and yeah. calling people out everywhere and then two what are some ways, or can you point us in a direction to work for a just society um, from a biblical perspective, how we can begin to craft that without being influenced maybe by this, uh, the negative parts of this worldview? Yeah, those, are really, those are really small topics to close with, right? I'll run through those in like <laughs> right. two minutes. In 30 seconds. Seth will do it. Yeah, right. I mean, the big thing I would say is dialogue. Dialogue, dialogue. You have to have okay. real dialogue. You cannot cut people off. You, can, you, you may not, and I think the Bible would be firm on this. Hmm. You may not cut off your brothers and sisters in Christ from dialogue. You may not write them off. You may not say they're not worth it. Um, mm. I think you have to assume the best of intentions. Uh, you have to, you cannot, um, I think, interestingly, I think critical theory can take a very um, just arrogant approach to other people and to say that, oh, they, you know, they, 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 they you look at their sincerely held beliefs and say, oh yeah, it's a bid for power. Give me a break. You're very cynical. I think with fellow Christians, you have to give them the benefit of the doubt. More than that, you have to say, look, I'm going to assume, unless I can absolutely prove it, that you really believe what you believe, 
and that I want and, and that you're not trying to get power over me. You're not doing this to dominate me. And we have to sit down as brothers and talk about these issues. That's the number one. And, and I would say that the way to things to avoid then uh, avoid calling people out. Um, avoid yelling at them, avoid labeling them. Don't, don't call them a Marxist. Oh, you're a Marxist. Uh, you know, just, just stop <laughs> it. Just, just talk. You know, I say to people, I say, if you, if you think they're espousing ideas that are actually false, just tell them why. Just say, hey, I think what you just said here, this, this sentence you said, I think contradicts what the Bible says. Why do you have to call them whatever, a Marxist, a progressive, a liberal, whatever, uh, you know, a conservative, a racist, an alt-right, you know, fanatic? Don't call them any of those names. Just say, hey, let's talk about scripture and, and bring it back to the Bible. Frankly, I think labeling people, it shuts them down and it, and it prevents you from calling them to, um, to re-examine their views. So that's the number one piece of advice I'd say is you have to be willing to dialogue. Uh, George Yancey has a great book called Beyond Racial Gridlock that I recommend. I think it's, I've read a lot of books on racial reconciliation. I think it's the best one I've read. Uh, we don't agree on everything, but I think that it's by far and away the best book I've read on the subject. And, it, and it, it's because I think his number one point is that we have to engage in what he calls active listening, really, truly listening to each other and then trying to understand where we're coming from so we can then work to solutions. Wow. Um, that was the, so that's, uh, that was the answer about um, what can we do? Yeah, man. That's, and that sounds like common sense, like uh, in a bit when you think of marriage, you know? Yeah, yeah. Like you, you know, if you just label each other, <laughs> right? You marks it, you know. It, it's but just terrible. Sitting down, active listening is that first step. Well, then the second point, like, what about thinking about justice? I think that it's a it's a huge topic, and I think this is also where listening is important. I think that when you come in and say, "Oh, you know, if you're a conservative, then you just really are greedy," or if you're a liberal, it's because you're just you know you're godless or something like that. I think that we have to stop that. We have to be willing to say, look, you know, and I'll, I'll be honest here. I'm a conservative. I'm a, you know, I, on principle, I think it just, it makes a lot of sense. And I, but I, I, I'm not going to go to someone and say that because you disagree with my conservative political stances on certain issues, uh, therefore, um, you know, you, you don't believe the Bible, blah, blah, blah. I think we have to say, I want to hear, I want to talk about this. Uh, and I want to understand where you're coming from. I think there's sort of some basic principles that we should be all be able to agree on in terms of, um, Working for a just society, and they're going to sort of push on, I think, push both people's buttons. I think we start with things like the Imago Dei, that everybody is equally made in God's image. All human beings, whether male or female, black or white, young or old, born or unborn, are made in God's image. So we have to start there. Um, we are obligated to protect the vulnerable, absolutely. And look through the Bible. God says you must protect people that are the, the, the widows, the orphans, the strangers, the foreigners. You ought to protect them and care for them. I'm not, again, and don't hear me talking about immigration policy at this point. I'm just saying, if you're a Christian, you're, yeah, I'm just saying, we have to distinguish between principles and policy. It's very important. I'm talking about principles here. You are called as a Christian to care for those who are vulnerable, period. I'm not talking about policy. I'm talking about you, you listening <laughs> individually. So don't pass it off to the government and say it's their responsibility. Or don't say, oh, only liberals care about caring for widows. Really? <laughs> you know, James in the Bible has something to say about that, by the way. So, yes, you're obligated to care for the vulnerable. Three, this is, this is a touch of nerve. The Mosaic law explicitly implemented policy to care for the vulnerable. The Levitical law... People say, well, it's not the government's job to care for the vulnerable. Well, when God had a law, he had policies that cared for the vulnerable, right? The tithe, the Levitical laws, the gleaning laws. 
they actively instituted policies that protect the vulnerable um, legislation. Uh, but then four, and then also justice in the Bible is both punitive, punishing evil, and restorative, correcting sin. So, or, or, or you know, restoring things that have been robbed by sin. Those are the sort of liberal-ish points. The conservative-ish points, I'd say, you can't go from the Bible to legislation. So in general, you can't say the Bible says it's, it's right and it's good, therefore we should have a law for it. I think it's very clear that not everything that's immoral should be illegal and vice versa. And, for example, things like pride, things like idolatry are evil. We do not want them to be laws, I hope. We don't think, we, I don't think we want to have laws against pride or against you know, lust. Uh, so I think it's, it's, it goes both ways. You can't point to the Bible and say that God cares for the orphans and widows. He wants us to care for them. Therefore, here's the policy the Bible commands us to institute. I think you can't be that simplistic. And then finally, I think one other side, both ways, by the way. So I'm not saying you can't go to the Bible. You can, but you have to be nuanced. You can't just say this. It's, like, it's The Bible is not a constitution. The Bible is our document for Christians. It's our constitution, but not the constitution of the United States of America. Um, I don't think it should be. Uh, I, I, think, I think no one thinks that we should, again, make, make pride illegal. And finally, last point would be that all laws compel people under the threat of force. This is a tricky one, but I think I think conservatives and libertarians are right here, is that when you make a law, if someone disobeys the law, eventually someone puts a gun to their head and says, obey the law or go to jail. And even little laws, and this is, this is actually interesting, think about the Eric Garner case, where Eric Garner was a black man who was um, accosted by cops for selling cigarettes illegally and ended up dying from a chokehold. That was the cause of death in the coroner's report. Here's the thing. He was selling illegal cigarettes, Right. Eventually, he gets put in a chokehold and dies. Now, I'm not going into the details of the case at all. I'm not talking about the case. I'm talking about the point. This, the point I'm making is this: when you pass any law, the underlying threat is if you break the law, eventually you will go to jail with a gun at your head. So, because of that, I think as Christians we should be hesitant to have too many laws. I'm not saying no laws. I'm not an anarchist. I'm not a libertarian. I'm just saying, hey, cautious, be cautious about what you say. Hey, this is a great idea. It's biblical. It's moral. Are you gonna? Are you willing to say if you disobey the law, you go to jail? I think we should be wary, and, and I think again, I'm, my my conservativeness is is showing through here. But I think we have to be careful about how many laws we make because we're compelling people against their will. Mm. Um, and so, I, those are again some brief points, a lot to talk about, but they're principles, not policy issues. And so, I think we have to try to. There, there's a there's a reason why. Christians have been arguing about what a just society looks like for 2,000 years. This is not a yeah. new debate. And so I think we have to give a little bit of grace to people who come down on different sides of certain issues uh, than, than we do. I mean, some of the issues I think are clear in the Bible. Like, if I say abortion should be illegal, right? I think that very strongly. And I can make a case for it. But I think there are other issues like, well, you know, how big should import tariffs be on steel? You know, that's a kind of a toss up there. You know, I'm not going to come down really strong on either side. So that's a very quick overview. Yeah, and I, I know I'm way, we're probably way over time. But, uh, <laughs> no, Neil, this has been amazing. I mean, so I, good. We're, we're, we're definitely going to have you back on the show. I feel like we could just talk for days and days. Um, thank you so <laughs> I much could, yeah. for taking the time to uh, to share this stuff with us, man. It's been so illuminating and insightful. And uh, appreciate you coming on the show, man. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. We are a-